Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray, and with me by a squadcast is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies, and a special guest tonight. Bob, do you want to introduce him? Yes, we're very pleased to have Professor Mark Haber from the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Behavior at the University of Illinois, Urbana. We're going to be talking a lot about cowbirds, which are very interesting. Uh... Back to the birds. <laughs> so, yeah, well, welcome to our program, uh, uh, Dr. Haber. Really pleased to have you on. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a topic I've wanted to have someone come on the radio and talk about for quite a long time. We get a lot of questions on our Audubon bird walks about these these fascinating birds, and I'm really, really pleased to have Dr. Haber, uh, who specializes in studying these birds and related birds. So, I'm really excited about tonight's show. Go ahead, Bob. Oh, good. Uh, we usually start our program by asking our uh, guests to tell us a little bit about their background, uh, how they got interested in uh, uh, their field, if it's ecology, and uh, you know, a little bit about their career and what, what they're doing right now. So um, perhaps you could uh, acquaint our uh, listeners with your, with your background. Sure thing. So I was born in Hungary, and I make um, for a terrible role model for ornithologists and students who want to be in birds uh, because I always wanted to study birds. I don't remember anything else in my life when I wanted to be, you know, a policeman or an astronaut or something like that. I always wanted to study birds even when I was five years old. And so um, I made good grades in school and uh, I was able to get a scholarship to go to Italy to finish high school, learn English. And um, I came to the U.S. for my education. And uh, except for a five-year break in New Zealand when I had a faculty job there, um, I've been in the U.S. studying birds here and, you know, sort of all the other continents as well. Um, but uh, um, the interest in, in cowbirds, interest in brood parasites that we'll talk about today has come during my college years. Uh, um, I did an internship um, at the Smithsonian uh, Front Royal um, uh, institution and um, I learned about brood parasitic ducks um, that do funny things with their development and um, I've been studying these parasitic birds ever since. Yeah, maybe you could uh, just uh, start off and briefly explain what what is brood parasitism? What do you what's that mean? Absolutely. So brood parasites are birds that lay their eggs in other individuals' nests. You can be a brood parasite that that parasitizes your own species, like canvasback ducks do, or song sparrows do occasionally. And you can be an obligate brood parasite, which always lays its eggs in other birds' nests, uh, other species' nests for that matter. And so cowbirds, uh, cuckoos in Europe, um, honey guides all over um, Africa and Asia are all obligate brood parasites. Uh, they are about 1% of bird species, so about 100 of the 10,000 birds we have. Um, but they impact about 17% of bird species. So they parasitize um, up to se uh, 1,700 bird species in the world. So it's a, a strategy that's evolved in multiple places independently? Seven times. It evolved three times in cuckoos, once in ducks, twice in songbirds, uh, once in honey guides. Wow. So it must work. Uh, it, it sure does for these birds, you know, there's not that many species, but, uh, but uh, um, they are quite successful, quite common. Um, you know, if you're in the U.S., you know, brown-headed cowbirds are one of the most 
common uh, blackbirds that you see after Latin blackbirds, of course. Um, and uh, the cuckoos are not doing so well because they are a long distance migratory species in uh, Europe and Africa and Asia. And, uh, you know, they are suffering from uh, climate change and uh, stopover habitat deforestation. Uh, but cowbirds love short grasses, pastures, lawns. Um, you know, we should call them the lawnmower birds because they are much more like a, you know, a lawnmower following bird than a buffalo bird these days. So uh, do some of the uh, species that get parasitized for their nests by the uh, cowbird and other birds, do they actually evolve eventually to recognize the uh, the, the foreign eggs or or is the match so good? Or do we have a kind of a competition, evolutionary competition going on? Absolutely. So, so we call it a co-evolutionary arms race. And uh, it's really quite prevalent among the cuckoos of Europe and Asia because they lay such mimetic eggs that the hosts have a hard time identifying the foreign egg in the nest and rejecting it. Um, uh, our cowbirds in North America are sort of a... A, a, um, a jack of all trades. They lay a warbler, a sparrow-like egg. You know, their their eggs are actually quite similar to cardinal eggs. Um, but what they do is, um, they uh, when they hatch from the egg, they are they beg more intensively, and so it's really hard for the parents to evolve a strategy to reject the most intensively begging chick from the nest, because if your nest is not parasitized, you would be killing your super duper chick. Um, if you're parasitized, you have to recognize that there's a cowbird and it's got a pink beak and, um, you know, it sounds a little different from your own uh, uh, nestlings. Uh, um, so those those are difficult traits to evolve. But uh, um, the yellow warbler, which you guys have in California and we have them here in uh, Illinois, has evolved a special alarm call that, that alerts the mates that there's a cowbird in the vicinity. Um, so, so most certainly North American birds recognize cowbirds as a threat. Um, in fact, red-winged blackbirds eavesdrop on that alarm call. They, when they hear the yellow warbler um, a screaming cowbird, cowbird, the, the red-winged blackbirds come in and try to beat up the cowbird that's, uh, that's uh, present locally. And, uh, and so the yellow warblers and the red-winged blackbirds um, kind of cooperate with each other uh, to beat back the cowbirds. Man, I... I just love all the drama that goes on in the natural world that we don't. It takes us a long time to even learn about it. Maybe before we get too far into um, into the the biology, let's um, let's hear a little more about cowbirds and what they are, why and why they're called cowbirds, and what their evolutionary history is like. I, I think that's a great story. So, so cowbirds are uh, um, most closely related to. Um, other cowbirds, obviously, uh, ours in North America is not unique. We have uh, two other cowbirds uh, uh, in North America, the bronze cowbird and the shiny cowbird. Um, the shiny cowbird is also, of course, uh, in South America and Central America and the Caribbean. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's the giant cowbird in Central America and uh, and South America, which uh, parasitize oropendulas and caciques and other uh, ictarid birds. Um, and then there's a specialist cowbird called the screaming cowbird. I mean, even their names are dramatic, you know. Uh, um, so screaming cowbirds mostly parasitize bay wings, which is another ictarid blackbird. So uh, so basically, cowbirds are a single genus 
uh, in North and South America um, that have derived from uh, parental uh, blackbirds like red winged blackbirds or uh, orioles or uh, bobolinks. Okay, so they don't just look like them. They're actually related to the blackbirds. Absolutely. Those are very close relatives of theirs. And then um, how did they develop this specialized adaptation to brood parasitism? So, you know, there's an urban legend that the cowbirds were following buffalo or bison. And, uh, you know, as the bison moved, the cowbird couldn't take care of their own eggs. So uh, that's not actually the, the scenario, unfortunately. I'm sorry to break down that urban oh, legend. I've been telling know, that story for years. I know, <laughs> I know. But cowbirds evolved in South America in the absence of large, you know, uh, uh, grazing mammals. Um, and what we think happened, um, and we have some evidence, uh, um, even from zebra finches in captivity, that uh, um, their nest was so um, vulnerable to predation that, uh, that uh, uh, even during the laying stage, their nests often got depredated. And so they had an extra egg coming, you know, already in the oviduct, ready to be laid somewhere. And so they started laying in other birds' nests. And uh, um, it makes sense that some of the specialist brood parasites, for instance, uh, uh, the screaming cowbird parasitizes other icterids uh, because, you know, you can be sure that they feed the right kind of stuff to the babies. Uh, their nests are probably the right size. Uh, but eventually cowbirds have evolved to parasitize um, over 250 species of, uh, of songbirds and subassigns, uh, both in South and uh, North America. And it's been a really successful strategy, right? They've spread. Uh, I mean, if they arose in South America, they're now pretty much all over North America. Yeah, we've we've seen, you know, during uh, um, the last 400 years, we've seen two major advances of cowbirds. Uh, one of them was, of course, the brown-headed cowbird that, uh, that spread from, you know, sort of uh, the southwestern United States into the northeast uh, with deforestation, um, agricultural development, uh, um, uh, cattle raising. Uh, and uh, um, the other expansion has been the, the shiny cowbird, which over the last 50 years has spread from uh, Venezuela and kind of island hopped its way into Florida and Louisiana through the Caribbean um, instead of coming uh, through um, Central America. Um, so, for instance, now in uh, Louisiana, you can have three species of cowbirds, which would not have been the case, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Interesting. So we're getting some pretty rapid spread and rapid change, evolutionary change happening. And, and the reversal of that, too, you know, as the Northeast, for instance, gave up on, uh, on cattle grazing for, uh, 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 for uh, uh, dairy farms, for instance, uh, the cowbirds have uh, dropped back in numbers. Um, and uh, as the forests have taken over some of the pastures, the cowbirds really need these short grassy areas for foraging. And they can only commute into the forest uh, um, up to about 10 kilometers. And if the, for the feeding grounds are further than 10 kilometers from the forest patch's diameter, for instance, uh, um, then the cowbird is unable to penetrate that, uh, that patch of forest. So the more unfragmented forest, the fewer the cowbirds. Huh. So they, they ride on the back of the cattle? Uh, <laughs> I, I've seen them. Uh, I've seen them on the back of horses and bisons. 
Um, I uh, I have not seen them myself on the back of a cow, but I'm sure there's plenty of pictures on the internet about that. Uh, uh, but what they do is um, they go for the insects that the cattle and the bison um, uh, flush off as they are, um, you know, grazing in the short grass. Uh, uh, cowbirds, you know, can eat seeds. Um, you know, they are granivores. You know, during the the fall and the 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 the, the winter. Uh, but uh, you know, to form an egg, you need a lot of protein. You need a lot of fat, and so uh, so the females uh, um, also need calcium, and uh, you can get more of that from insects than from seeds. Yeah, the only reason I ask is in, in uh, I've seen in in Kauai, which I spent a fair amount of time. Uh, the egrets there are right around on horses. And <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So yeah, yeah. we've got cattle egrets, we've got oxpackers, you know, yeah. there are some uh, some specialists that go for, you know, insects and ectoparasites embedded in the skins of large mammals or just hitch a ride uh, because they are lazy to walk. Uh, um, but, uh, but, but cowbirds really benefit from, you know, a freshly, you know, cropped grass field. And they are, um, they're migratory, at least here on the California coast, they migrate. Are they all migratory or the resident population as well? There are resident populations, you know, further south, uh, but it's, um, you know, they, they are short distance migrants. They, they migrate within the bounds of North America, you know, in the Sierra Nevadas, they leave early, you know, to avoid the snow and, uh, and the food shortages. Um, my favorites are the California, um, the San Francisco cowbirds. If you go to Golden Gate Park in the, in the wintertime, uh, people feed the cowbirds. And so, you know, you can just pretend that you're giving them some seed and they land on your, on your hands and your head. And, you know, um, they, they, they are really quite adorable uh, when you get to know them. They are a highly social species, right? Uh, it's, it's sort of a strange conundrum of how do you grow up being a brute parasite but then become you know a highly social and uh and communal species like you know hanging out with your own species with other icterids um and socializing even with people yeah that that brings up a, a kind of a key point that i think a lot of people wonder about you know we've all heard about imprinting the phenomenon where a, a young a chick will uh, perceive whatever animal it is that's feeding them as its parent and grow up thinking it's that. And this is a problem sometimes for uh, rest, bird rescues and rehab organizations like Peregrine Falcons, for example. This was a big problem for them trying to uh, feed young Peregrine Falcons and have them grow up knowing they're a Peregrine Falcon instead of a human. So how does a cowbird know that it's a cowbird? That's a great question, and I've been only studying it for about 25 years now. Um, so, so I did my PhD on that question, and uh, we found two sort of solutions to the question. One of them is uh, the chatter call, the rattle-like vocalization that the cowbirds emit seems to be um, not geographically variable, so it seems to be not learned. Um, and uh, even baby cowbirds in the nest of a song sparrow or a, or a Acadian flycatcher will recognize uh, that chatter call as something important. 
they raise their head, they open their beak. It's it's a non-functional response because, you know, of course, mommy cowbird will never feed them. But uh, um, what we found that as juveniles and even as adults, cowbirds are really attracted to this vocalization. And they have special brain areas that uh, get activated in response to this call, even if they've never heard it before. Um, and uh, more recently, uh, we found that uh, if you couple a canary song with this rattle call or with this chatter call, the, the cowbirds will actually start to learn the canary song. Um, so, so it really can misguide their, their, their learning process. We think that it's a block and key type of mechanism. They hear the rattle, they hear the chatter, and then they start learning about the individual that produces this chatter. We call it the, the password hypothesis. You basically you know, have to know that the rattle is a special type of call, and then you enter the world of cowbirds and you learn about you know, where to feed, where to spend the night, where to migrate, who are the sexy males, who are the successful females, who you should avoid because they are bullies. Um, you know, cowbirds have a lot of social skills that they have to learn, but the first step is to identify who is another cowbird, and we think they use this chatter call to identify that. Uh, we also think that they look at visual cues, and uh, so I spent my PhD days uh, uh, painting baby cowbirds with a, ma with a magic marker and found that, uh, that birds that look like themselves in terms of coloration are more likely to be approached by young birds who have never seen another cowbird. Uh, we call it the armpit effect or the, the self-referent phenotype matching hypothesis. And uh, Richard Dawkins actually came up with this idea for mammals. Uh, how do you recognize your own relatives when you've never met them? And the answer is they smell like you. Uh, for birds, it would be they sound like you or they, they, they look like you. And so we also tested this hypothesis for my PhD and found some support for it. Cool. Yeah. The evolutionary history of these things is amazing to me that, uh, that it sounds like they've, this recognition of the call must be something that persisted from its evolutionary roots, right? Absolutely. And so my colleagues in South America are uh, testing the shiny cowbird, which also has this chatter call um, and finding uh, um, um, consistent results. Uh, they, they, are, um, um, they still haven't published it, but uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about the results. It's, there's nothing better for a scientist than somebody thinking first that you're crazy. And then, you know, recognizing that you're not crazy, you're just describing biological diversity, uh, which is crazy in itself, right? I, I mean, that's why we love the natural world, because it's so unexpected and so diverse and, and, and so um, unbelievably complex. Um, and then, you know, if somebody goes out and tests your ideas again, that's just the greatest recognition a scientist can have. So this is one of these things where first they laugh at you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. For about 10 years, people laughed at me. Yeah. And then uh, and then it turns out the chatter call is also, as I mentioned, uh, is also important for um, um, knowing what a sexy male is. So females rate the males based on their songs, and they are much more likely to deliver this chatter call after a sexy male song. And so the experiment was... Uh, um, Take a male song, couple it with the chatter call, and then see if a naive female who's never met a male before uh, would, would preferentially display and invite 
uh, uh, the male whose song is coupled with the Cherokee versus another type of uh, uh, um, uh, coupling. And um, sure enough, the females, naive females, also pay attention to these uh, uh, to these to these rattle calls. Uh, um, so there's multiple functions, not just finding out for the juveniles who the cowbirds are, but also who the sexy males are, and you know who the um, probably the bullies are that you want to avoid. So the the initial uh, did you call it a scatter call or the uh, chatter call? Chatter call is what kind of I think you said that it kind of unlocks the key and allows other sorts of behavior to kind of emerge. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, com- communication develops between uh, the bird and uh, some other entity. Right? Absolutely. And so if you keep a cowbird, a brand-headed cowbird in captivity for two years, they will eventually imprint on you. Um, you know, because if there's no other reference for them to learn about, um, or if you keep them with canaries for two years, they will sing a canary song and they will court a canary. So, so there is imprinting in cowbirds, but we think it's delayed. It's gated by this chatter call and, uh, and the timing of it is, is shifted evolutionarily so that they can make the best decisions. Is, yeah, that, is that delayed on account of the fact they might be picking up uh, their... Uh stepsisters and stepbrothers from the same nest and then they need to avoid kind of learning those things and wait a little bit until they're more mature until they start get, getting into the cowbird uh, absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah and 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 the cowbirds are actually quite simple uh there's there are uh, um african uh, uh video finches uh, uh widas that uh and indigo birds um whose who's, the species recognition is much more complicated. So in that system, you know, the the birds, the indigo birds look very similar to each other, but they sound entirely different because they they have a species-specific song which says, I'm a parasite, you know, come and mate with me. But they also have a, a mimicry song of the host by which they were raised. And so a female needs to know which male was raised by the same host as she was so the genetically compatible individuals can mate with each other. So they, they actually have to learn what the song of the foster parent is. And then they still have to recognize a parasite that adds a little bit of an extra, you know, to that song uh, that says, I'm a parasite, don't confuse me with the host. Um, and so, you know, that's a system that's been around for millions and millions of years. And so you expect this kind of sophisticated species recognition um, um, uh, mechanisms to be in place. It's fascinating. That is. That and, and soon we will have these birds in North America. They were introduced, these parasitic abidas were introduced to Puerto Rico and Orange County, and uh, they are already breeding in Orange County. So, you know, um, Mendocino County, you know, just wait for the new parasite to arrive. Another another bird to add to the list. Species exactly. Pintail yeah. <laughs> wow. it does. Because it probably will work its way up the coast. Uh, we don't. Well, you nope. need the host. You need an astrealid finch. So you need an introduced host and you need the introduced parasite, uh, uh, which well, makes for an ecological nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe we'll get lucky and we won't get the finch. Hopefully. We do have uh, the grackles have made their way up here to Mendocino County. We now have nesting resident nesting grackles. I bet, uh, I bet, and they're so wreaking havoc on the other birds' nests. So the cowbirds are uh, uh, 
parasites obligatory, but are they obligatory to the same host or can that change when conditions change? They are, they are quite flexible. So unlike the cuckoos, uh, they don't lay specific egg colors. Um, and so, so a single female was genetically tracked to uh, parasitize multiple host species. You know, some of them are specialists. So um, in one study, um, say half of the females were specialists to song sparrows or red-winged blackbirds. Um, and the others, you know, sort of laid their eggs in all kinds of different host nests. Um, um, there's no specialization as far as we can tell with respect to egg size or egg color or gait color uh, um, amongst the different female cowbirds. Is there ever a situation where the, where the cowbird is developing an egg and it's oviduct that is of a certain uh, pattern that it would match a species and there, there may multiple species that could lay the egg in, but it has to lay the egg in a one of those species, if it's developed that way? Uh, well, that, that is a really great question. I actually tried to study that uh, when I was a graduate student. I, I gave captive cowbirds a choice between a nest with white eggs and a nest with speckled egg. Um, it turned out that, uh, that uh, um, I never got them to lay an egg in those nests because cowbirds are just too smart. Uh, they know that a nest is active when the host is around it. Um, you know, it's really hard to get them experimentally laid into artificial nests unless you're in captivity. And, uh, and so um, it's, it's a hard question to ask whether a cowbird knows in advance, um, you know, what kind of host um, she's going to parasitize. We know that they, they, they can plan a few days ahead because cowbirds lay their eggs uh, about 10 minutes before sunrise. And so you don't have time to look for the host nest. You have to know from the previous day or the previous days that there's an active nest that you can parasitize. Uh, uh, but whether you can plan your egg color is unlikely because females lay consistent egg colors per individual. Now, you just said something that was certainly news to me. I did not know about the timing of the egg laying and what's, Super important. what's that about, yeah. Yeah, so the cowbirds need to lay their eggs when the host is not around. In the case of, uh, for instance, chipping sparrows or field sparrows, we know that the moment they see a female cowbird near the nest, they abandon the nesting attempt. They can't tell the cowbird egg apart from the host uh, egg necessarily, but they know a female cowbird. And so the cowbird needs to lay early enough so that it avoids uh, um, overlapping uh, uh, with, the, with the host themselves. Um, with respect to laying. Um, the European cuckoo is, you know, has been around as a root parasite much longer and uh, they just lay in the afternoon when the host is like out foraging. Um, so a cuckoo lays its eggs at like 4 p.m. in the afternoon versus the cowbird does so like 10 minutes before sunrise. So right when the when the female who would have been on the nest overnight, right? She would not necessarily often uh, during egg laying, the females don't spend the night necessarily on the, on the nest. Right. Uh, if yeah. they do, then the cowbird is, is doomed. And, and there are cases, you know, of videos on the internet, uh, you can search for where the cowbird, you know, is literally laying on top of the, the female Oriole, um, sitting tightly on her nest, uh, uh, because that's her def only defense behavior against the cowbird, you know, coming and laying her egg, uh, um, and uh, the South American cowbirds, you know, uh, uh, also peck the host eggs, so their own eggs are more likely to be uh, uh, to be hatched 
compared to the host eggs. Uh, remember, this is a system where the cowbird chick grows up together with the host nest mate in most cases. Yeah, and uh, and for people that don't know how birds lay their eggs and brood them, they don't uh, they don't brood them until they've laid the whole clutch, right? And so a, a parent bird will lay one egg every couple of days because it takes a while to to make a new egg. And so in the in that period of time, they're not on the nest all the time. They have to leave it alone. If they once they start incubating and keep the eggs warm, the egg starts to develop. And if they incubated from the first time they laid an egg, then the eggs would all hatch at different times. And it's that would be a real problem, yeah. So the Absolutely. cowbirds take advantage of that. The cowbirds take advantage of that. Uh, with smaller birds, they can lay an egg every day. Um, but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, the reason birds only lay maximum one egg a day is because uh, out of their two ovaries, only one of them is working. And, uh, and so, you know, like you often see dinosaur eggs, you know, and they are, they are laid in couples. That's because many dinosaurs, you know, had uh, both of their ovaries functioning uh, versus our present day dinosaurs are just laying with one um, ovary. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's definitely uh, the time away from the nest is, uh, is the cowbird special time. So we think they, they nest search, you know, after they, they lay their egg. And then they spend the afternoon uh, busily foraging, looking for calcium sources uh, to form the shell for the next egg to be laid the next morning. So, so a, the, cowbird, uh, a female cowbird can lay an egg every day? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She does lay in clutches. So, you know, that's still remnant from being a nest uh, building bird. Um, so she will probably lay four or five eggs in a row and then take a couple of days off and then lays another four or five days eggs in a row. Um, on average, a cowbird female lays um, one egg every other day um, over the course of the summer, which can add up to 40, 42, nests, uh, 42 eggs uh, per summer. In captivity, there's a cowbird that is known to have laid 70 eggs a summer. Holy wow. cow. <laughs> the passerine chicken. Yeah. And that's what they called it, yeah. The passerine chicken. No wonder they're so successful. So... Uh, Bird eggs uh, actually can sit in kind of a suspended state until they're brooded. Is that right? Uh, Absolutely. Important. Imagine, yeah. imagine a, you know, um, a chickadee um, or a, a, a great tit in Europe. You know, the same thing. Uh, um, they are um, laying, you know, um, you know, six, seven, twelve eggs. Um, you know, and these are these are uh, uh, birds that uh, that start incubating on the penultimate or the last egg laid. Um, those eggs can just stay in the nest at room temperature or ambient temperatures uh, for quite a while. And so what, you, you, you talked of uh, cowbirds in captivity laying eggs. Uh, what do they do if they don't have somebody to pair? To parasitize, do they still lay an egg somewhere? They, can you force them to build a nest? Is that those, <laughs> those genes in there somewhere? <laughs> no, the genes. Um, we don't think it's it's the genes. We think it's the hormone receptors. Um, so we think that the prolactin receptors, um, which are responsible for incubation behavior, are sort of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, neo. Uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, a neotenic which means they are uh, much like those of juveniles. So if you compare a juvenile red-winged blackbird's brain with respect to prolactin receptors, which is the incubation hormone for birds, 
uh, the cowbird female adult's brain looks more like a juvenile uh, red wing brain compared to an adult's red wing brain. And so we think that the genes are probably still there, uh, but the hormone receptors are just not activated. Um, and so you can pump up a cowbird female with prolactin or progesterone and she won't ever build a nest or she won't ever incubate an egg. Uh, um, those experiments have been tried in the 60s and failed. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. So if you just joined us, uh, you're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. And uh, my name is Tim Bray. With me is Dr. Robert Spies. And our guest tonight is Dr. Mark Hauber. And the topic is specific as brood parasitism and specifically by the brown-headed cowbird, a widely abundant North American bird that lays its eggs in other birds' nests and uh, takes advantage of the tremendous energy savings uh, the, that they gain by not building a nest and not having to feed the young. The other, the host bird winds up feeding the young. I've personally seen, I don't know, four or five different species feeding cowbird chicks. It's a remarkable sight. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, do the do the uh, when the cowbird female cowbird lays its egg, does it like then go on vacation or take a cruise or? <laughs> they, you know, they, I mean, remember that some of the hosts will reject the eggs. So like catbirds and American robins are really good at rejecting cowbird eggs. Um, some hosts will abandon the parasitized nesting attempt because they, they, they can tell that they were parasitized either because they spotted the female cowbird or they, they, they can tell that something is wrong about the, the, the clutch. Um, and, then, uh, um, and then, you know, even the chicks don't always make it. Uh, because maybe house finches uh, feed the wrong type of food to the chicks. Uh, they feed a, a grain-based diet and cowbirds need an insect-based diet. So, you know, just because you can lay 40 eggs a summer doesn't mean that all 40 of your babies will survive. Uh, otherwise, you would have a world covered by cowbirds. Mm. And, uh, and so, it, you know, out of all those eggs, you know, maybe one or two make it a summer and then they have to come back the following year and be successful, you know, either... Uh, um, find a good territory if, if they are female um, or, uh, you know, sing a good song, you know, if they are male. And, uh, and so, you know, it takes a lot of effort to get those one, two offspring uh, recruiting to the next generation. In the host birds, uh, what's more important, uh, visual clues about an egg being foreign or is, are there olfactory clues as well? I tried olfactory experiments last summer with robins, um, but robins, you know, uh, uh, lay blue eggs, immaculate blue eggs. The cowbirds lay beige speckled eggs. Um, so we think it's the visual clues that matter for the robins. Uh, I I scented the um, I I make three D printed eggs and put them into cowbird host nests um, so that we don't have to use the cowbirds' own eggs because of course they are a protected migratory species in this country and uh and so you know i scented them with orange and peanut and other smells uh um the orange experiment is published and uh, we found no effect and i even used cowbird cloacal scent don't ask me how i got that but uh um it was uh it was also not uh, uh um causing more egg rejection by the robins uh, so the robins really just pay attention to color they pay attention to shape they pay attention to maculation or potential visual or perhaps tactile views. 
And so a robin will actually push the covered egg out of its nest if it can recognize. In about ninety-seven percent of the cases, uh, uh, we we find about three, four hundred robin nests in my study site here in Illinois, uh, with my graduate students and research assistants. And we find you know one, two nests that are parasitized. Uh, this year was our a bumper event. We found four parasitized nests. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, one of them was during the egg laying, so the robin hasn't come back yet to lay her second egg to realize, like, oh, my God, there's a cowbird egg that's rejected. And then another nest was already uh, abandoned because of bad weather, and so the cowbird laid her egg, uh, but the robin never came back, and that's why we think the cowbird egg remained. But, you know, robins, catbirds, um, you know, some vireos, some orioles are, are pretty good at rejecting cowbird eggs. And then sparrows, warblers, um, flycatchers are just terrible. <laughs> yeah, the warblers, my God, it's it's an amazing sight to see a tiny little Wilson's warbler, a bird about the size of your thumb, feeding a cowbird chick. And the yeah, chick yeah, is... and they're probably very proud of it too. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's it for sure is. Uh, we haven't quite detected a, a, a cost with respect to return rates um, after you raise a cowbird. But remember, you know, you in that case, you know, with a really small host, uh, with a really asynchronous hatching, so the cowbird hatches much earlier than the host. Uh, chances are the cowbird chick will uh, survive much more likely than the host-owned chicks. Um, I, I find song sparrows, you know, really incredible because they can raise all their babies as well as the cowbird chick, and then they'll come back the next year and breed successfully. Yeah, that is amazing. They're, they're you know, a general forager. They're extremely good at insect foraging. Yeah. For sure. I, I, you know, even when the bad, weather was bad uh, in Ithaca, New York, where I studied song sparrows and cowbirds, uh, the song sparrows just, just marched through the bad weather. You know, they found those green caterpillars and fed them to their babies and the cowbird, of course. Yeah, that's remarkable, though, that they can feed because that one cowbird chick is probably got the same mass as what four, four or five song sparrow chicks. That, you know, at, at the nesting stage, probably like two, two uh -huh. and a half. Uh, but yeah, once they are fledglings, you know, they're gigantic, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but but many of the birds, um, they what they do is uh, uh, they they engage in brood division. So the male would take, you know, like one of the chicks or two of the chicks, and the female will take the other chicks. Um, and so that way, you know, they can still produce, you know, some of their their own chicks because you know the cowbird is not directly competing with the host chick themselves. But there are hosts, um, like Eastern Phoebes, that are pretty decent sized uh, birds, but they uh, their babies hatch five days after the cowbird. So you can imagine that those tiny fledgling or those tiny hatchlings, you know, uh, underneath a five day old cowbird chick that has like halfway through development, um, are not doing too well. No, they don't have much of a chance, I would think. Yeah. No. And then doesn't sometimes, uh, is the cowbird, I know some brood parasites do this, uh, the, the chick will actually dislodge the other eggs or the other chicks once it's hatched. Do cowbirds do that? Cowbirds don't do that. Uh, there's one video of them doing it, but we think it's an accidental cowbird just like, you know, stood up and shook its wings and accidentally tossed out an indigo bunting. Uh, but uh, uh, common cuckoos um, and uh, other cuckoos, cuckoos do this, uh, you know, so they hatch 
And a couple of days later, when they gained a little bit of strength, uh, they toss all the other host eggs and chicks out of the nest, even when they are still naked and blind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Central American cuckoos, like uh, striped cuckoos or honey guides in Africa and Asia, they have a specialized hook on their beak. And so they just slaughter the eggs and the host nestmates to death by pecking them and, and piercing the eggshells. Um, cowbirds just, you know, outcompete them, you know, same thing with, uh, um, um, some other species like great spotted cuckoos, parasitizing smaller hosts or, uh, um, channel built cuckoos, which are Australian. They are like the largest brood parasitic cuckoo. Um, they are about, uh, um, a kilogram and a half, um, you know, wow. or yeah, it, it's a, it's a heavy bird. That's a heavy bird. Yeah. They parasitize large crows so they can afford that. Wow. It's amazing diversity. So the, uh, is there any post, uh, incubation interaction between, uh, the cow bird and it's, it's, uh, nest mates or it's uh, adopted parents or once, once the cow bird, you know, has, uh, become independent, uh, there's little interaction afterwards, you know, the cow birds, I've Henry's cabbards and I, I swear there's like an anti-imprinting period. So I hand raise them, you know, like I, I come in at three o'clock in the morning, feed them and uh, feed them every two hours. And then they still hate me. Um, and so, you know, if you hand raise like a finch or a sparrow, you know, they, they fall in love with you and they imprint on you just like Conrad Lorenz's ducklings did and then goslings did. And, uh, and so they love you for the rest of their, their life. Uh, uh, cowbirds are, are not like that. Uh, they, they really seem to have, um, you know, this sort of like uh, antisocial period against the people or the birds that have fed them. Um, I haven't tested this experimentally, but I would love to do that before I retire. So they're yeah. pretty much, pretty much ingrates towards their, adopted parents right you would have to be right because yeah. the next yeah. thing you do is you come back and lay your egg into that nest yeah, yeah. <laughs> fool me <Yeah>. twice <laughs> not, yes not, exactly not much love there no. yeah, I, uh, I think the one one of the early times i saw this was a a recently fledged cowbird chick so they're actually kind of cryptic and hard to identify uh, a lot of us birders um the adults we we can identify and then the the chicks only have this plumage for a very short period of time and so you only get a a couple of weeks a year to see them like this and it's hard to identify them in the field you just get a quick look at this nondescript gray finch like gray strikey yeah yeah what is that you know we always have this every spring we 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 go through this period of confusion trying to figure out what bird we're looking at and then we remember oh yeah and the, the young cowbird. So I've seen a, a, a recently fledged cowbird chick begging, uh, sitting out on the ground in the open. Uh, and then it immediately got fed by a Pacific Slope flycatcher. Oh, my God. Yeah. Bringing it insects. So that's perfect for the cowbird chick. But it for was, sure. you know, the cowbird chick was big and it was able to fly. It just didn't feel like it yet. But it no, must have been no. getting pretty close to independence. When do they actually just take off and leave? Uh, they... we, we think within two weeks of fledging, they are, um, you know, they are independent. Uh, in, in captivity, it takes longer because, you know, I feed them until I can see that they can feed themselves. And so they probably abuse me. Uh, but, I, I, you know, with the parents, you know, getting onto the next clutch and, uh, 
and uh, um, you know kicking off uh, um, uh, brand offering conflict, uh, uh, um, you know, taking place. Um, Cabards are probably independent after two weeks. Uh, we find that that Phoebe's, uh, uh, which was one of my subjects for my PhD, uh, they renested in about two weeks after a successful fledging. Uh, but we also found that a lot of cabbage chicks got picked up by predators um, simply because they are sitting in the middle of the lawn and begging really loudly. And, you know, if I was a, uh, you know, I was an exhibitor, you know, I, that would be lunch um, every day for the rest of the summer. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly what I thought when I saw this bird doing. It's like, dude, you are totally going to get picked off by a Cooper's hawk or a sharpshin hawk. Exactly, exactly. How long do they have that juvenile plumage? Cryptic they uh, um you know so they they molt into into the adult like plumage uh you can still tell a, a second year caber that it still retains some of the gray feathers uh but uh but by august uh you know the males are mottled and uh you know molting into the adult like plumage and the females are molting off their their gray stripy feathers into the brown you know typical female plumage mm-hmm yeah, so they do they have any social interactions uh, among the cobbard populations that are other than what we're talking about in terms of these interactions with the with the hosts and so forth do they have some kind of social structure sure sure so the adults definitely uh you know the males remember this is a male that doesn't have to do anything but provide sperm for the next generation um so they have strong hierarchies and and who gets to consort with a female and who has to stay, you know, behind. But the females are also quite picky. Um, so we did the genetic analysis and we found that female cowbirds are 70, 80%, you know, uh, are faithful uh, to their preferred partner uh, genetically. So, you know, that that is quite surprising. What it tells us is that the females have sort of free choice and they choose a consorting male, um, you know, as if like forming a pair bond, you know, there's, there's no pair bond really because they don't pr- protect the territories together. They don't build a nest. They don't feed the babies, but there, there seems to be a bit of uh, consortship going on. Uh, um, and then also because uh, in areas where the cabbage are not too dense, so like not in the Midwest, but you know, the East or the West are, uh, Cowbirds uh, preferentially parasitize uh, hosts within a given area. Uh, they try to be exclusive, so other females don't lay their eggs into the same nest as they are parasitizing. Um, we're finding that uh, that if you catch a juvenile and adult, you often catch the mom and the, the daughter or the mom and the son together just because of territoriality. It, it doesn't mean that there's active, you know, sort of parental care going on, but uh, um, it would definitely, you know, um, make sense for a territorial female to sort of recruit a juvenile into a flock of cowbirds because chances are it's um you know one of her daughters or sons mm-hmm. and they do flock up in the winter time for sure oh for sure for sure there's a lot of learning going on during the winter a lot of you know the, remember the males have to learn how to sing the the sexy songs for the females and so they learn it from uh from the local males and the sierra nevadas uh, you know, they have dialects, you know, different mountain ranges and valleys have different preferred songs by the females and the males can sing, you know, those songs. They can be bilingual dialectically, uh, you know, sing one song to one valley female and sing another song to another valley's female. No kidding. Um, yeah, they, they, you know, the cowbirds do do well with their social skills. 
yeah, that's amazing though that they they can uh, they can learn different dialects of their own song and sing them. That's uh, what other bird does that. A, a lot of birds have dialects, you know. Uh, um, in fact, California is, is sort sort of the mm-hmm. the home of the the the, the studies. Whether it's uh, you know. Uh, um, the song sparrows, for instance, you yeah. know, there's there's more dialects in song sparrows than any other species in North America. But uh, but it's funny to see it in a brute parasitic species. And what happens is that the the, the cowbirds have a delayed learning uh, um, um, development. Uh, uh, they wait until the winter and the first uh, spring to learn the songs properly. They sort of have a, a rudimental song, but they they improve upon it in their first spring. Uh, just by hanging out with the older males. That, that still fascinates me that, because they're migratory. They don't live, they, they're not resident in those mountains, in those mountain valleys. And so but they come back to the same place. It seems so, strange that they would have, they would develop dialects when they, you know, they commingle in the wintertime. So half the year. They, yeah. they can, they can. But remember, what matters is what a female wants, you know, in the springtime. And so, you know, it doesn't matter what she wants in the winter. You know, if, if she has a preference for a certain dialect, uh, you know, just because there's there's co-adaptation between the males and the females, their genes need to be compatible. Um, you know, if you're a high elevation nesting bird or a high elevation uh, parasitizing bird, uh, you know, you probably want a partner who can handle the oxygen levels and, and right. other adaptations required for high elevation breathing. And, uh, and so, you know, dialects allow you to identify those, uh, those individuals. So you get, you, you've actually analyzed and found genetic differences between geographic, uh, I guess you'd call them subspecies or population. So, so I have worked with people who have done that, uh, looked at population structure and, uh, and we're finding, uh, um, you know that the adult females are phylopatric, uh, so so they show breeding uh, faithfulness to the same site year after year, and uh, we also found that uh, about five percent of the babies survive and come back to the exact same site. So when we studied them at Mono Lake, uh, we banded about a uh, hundred baby cowbirds in the nest, and uh, and five of them ended up coming back uh, um, to that same site and often to the same watershed, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, a lot of fidelity, yeah. And we think the rest of them died, of course, you know, because remember, if more than 5% of the babies make it, you will have a globe covered with with cowbirds. (laughs) Yeah, the relentless mathematics of nature. Well, you know, I mean, you know, we have to talk about the cowbirds, you know, depressing host reproductive success at some point. And so, you know, when I studied them in my, for my PhD in the East Coast, I studied them in Phoebe-ness. Uh, that was an advice by, by Steve Rothstein, who was sort of the father of cowbird studies in, uh, in North America at University of California, Santa Barbara. And, uh, and so I, I studied them in Phoebe-ness and everybody, you know, was really upset how the Phoebes didn't make it and the cowbird made it. But, you know, Phoebes nest in people's backyards and, you know, under eaves without predators. And so they nest like up to three times a year, you know, and they have five eggs a clutch or four eggs a clutch. You know, that that would be a lot of Phoebes in the world if the cowbirds weren't parasitizing them. Uh, um, and Phoebes are not that pretty. You don't want the world just covered by Phoebes. Um, I mean, they're they are sweet and, you know, they have a good little tune, but, uh, um, you know, 
basically both of the species, the cowbirds and the phoebes, have expanded their ranges because of human activities. If you didn't cut down the forest and didn't build up porches and barns, the phoebes would be much sparser and the cowbirds wouldn't be there either. So we can really only blame ourselves for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a classic, yeah. Um, there's, uh, there's a recurring theme on the Ecology Hour is that when you make any change to an ecosystem uh, and alter the habitat, there are some species that suffer and there are some species that benefit. And, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And we tend to always focus our attention on the ones that suffer and we forget about the species that actually benefit. So before we run out of time, we should do a couple of things. Uh, you, you started to talk a little bit about uh, the effect that this brood parasitism has on the host species and depressing their success. And I know there's at least one warbler that this is considered to be a real threat. Uh, and then before we run out of time, uh, we'll need to have some resources for people to go look up more information about these amazing birds. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so you know, the Kirtland Borbury is the classic study where habitat was uh, uh, um, destroyed, reduced, not burned, um, and so the population dwindled, but they also got heavily parasitized by cowbirds. And so people thought that, that you know, they need to control the cowbirds. Uh, and so, you know, um, thousands and thousands, you know, in fact, dozens of thousands of cowbirds had been removed from Kirtland Warbler habitats. Um, but it wasn't until the habitat was restored that the numbers increased. So the cowbird uh, removal, um, you know, uh, preserved the numbers from going the species extinct. Uh, but the habitat restoration and the habitat creation was, you know, important to increase the numbers. Um, so, you know, again, it was our fault mostly, not the cowbird's fault. Uh, in that particular scenario. In fact, they were so good at removing the cowbirds that today there are no uh, removal attempts at Kirtland Warbler habitats because um, all the cowbirds were killed off. And um, um, about three years ago when I studied them, um, there was one parasitized nest in the entire population that was monitored. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's really quite a story. At the same time, you know, there are other species uh, like uh, uh, the, the black cap vireo, uh, which is also endangered and, you know, and in that scenario, scenario um, if you remove the cattle, the cowbirds went with the cattle. And so you could protect uh, a vireo habitat uh, uh, by uh, by not having cattle nearby. Um, and so cowbird removal was um, also uh, of mixed success because a lot of migratory cowbirds were removed instead of the local resident cowbirds. Uh, but if you remove the cattle, you know, the cowbirds uh, didn't have suitable habitat for foraging. And so their numbers went down and the, the, the vireos uh, were better able to breed. Um, uh, all the amazing complexity and, and all these shifts in equilibrium going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but you know, we, we are definitely uh, um, uh, witnessing cases where, you know, the cowbirds are winning and the hosts are losing. And those cases, um, you know, the, there are permits in place to uh, to control cowbirds like the southwestern willow flycatchers in California. You know, there's there's really not much you can do there other than control the cowbirds because habitat is so limited and uh, and so easily penetrable by the cowbirds. Yep. Let's uh, let's have you talk just a little bit about where people can go for more information. And I'll put some uh, links and maybe some 
additional information, certainly links to some cowbird calls so people can hear that rattle call that we talked about and the beautiful song of the male. <laughs> It, it's one of the songs in North America that covers the most uh, frequency ranges. You know, goes up to well into the teens and drops down to the to the low single digits in kilohertz. Uh, um, they are really, really quite amazing song for the observer. Wow, I didn't quite realize that that they had that wide of a range. It is a really distinctive sound. It doesn't yes, even sound yeah, like a bird song, really. No, it sounds like you know the faucet dripping water or something like that. <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, there are, there are journals, you know, the ornithology and the ornithological application by the American Ornithological Society that publish a lot of original papers on cowbirds. Uh, there are a couple of books, um, uh, Cuckoo's Cowbirds and Other Cheats by Nick Davis and uh, Cowbirds and Other Brood Parasites by uh, Catherine Ortega. Um, they were published about 20 years ago, so they won't have the Chattercall story because my PhD was finished in 2002, just, just after these books came out. Um, but, uh, but there are over thousands and thousands of papers written on cowbirds. Uh, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, public information available. Um, in fact, Audible magazine published an article on should you remove a cowbird egg uh, if you find a parasitized nest, to which the answer is no. Um, and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, unless you're a researcher with a permit, you know, in place to be able to study the effects of cowbird removal. Remember, cowbirds are also mafioso, right? They, they, there's a population of prothonotary warblers where if you do remove the cowbird egg, the cowbird will come back and depredate the nest and they will retaliate against the potential egg ejector. So, no you know, kidding. um, you could you could cause more damage by removing the cowbird egg than by leaving it in there because cowbirds you know they have time they can monitor the nests and they can uh, they also engage in behavior called farming behavior where if they find a, a, a complete nest that's not available for parasitism anymore because incubation has begun they will depredate that nest to cause the host to renest and that host nest becoming available for parasitism so look up mafia and cabard look up farmer and cabard um there are some good stories uh uh you know that uh, that make for great uh, great reading material and there's also of course your own website uh, the cowbird lab that's right. Yeah, we, we cover quite a few articles on, on cowbirds. And uh, if, you know, if anybody needs any, any uh, resources and they can't get it, um, I'm happy to find a PDF and send it to them. Great. Well, thank you very much. You've been a great, uh, a great guest. And uh, I think it's a really fascinating topic. Uh, I learned a lot, probably a lot more than Tim did, because I didn't know barely anything about cowbirds before we started. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Tim. This was an honor to to contribute. Uh, um, you know, hopefully, uh, it was a valuable discussion. Okay. Good night, everybody, and uh, have a great evening. Science is real from the. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.